want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to open up to the very beginning of the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at the beginning of chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible and would like to follow along in a physical Bible, you can find one in the pew rack in front of you. And our passage of Scripture is, at, is also printed for you in the worship guide, so you can also follow along there. So last Sunday, we began a new sermon series that we are calling Flourish. It's a series based on the Gospel of John. It's going to be a brief series. Actually, last Sunday, I said that it was going to be five weeks, but I decided to extend it to seven weeks because I think there's so much good here in the Gospel of John for us along the lines of this theme. So it'll be a seven-week series in all. And the question that we're basically asking is this, how do we flourish? Not just exist or survive, but how do we actually really, truly flourish? How do we live the good life is another way of putting it. I made this comment last week that Jesus wasn't interested in making people more religious. He was interested in helping people to flourish. And we are going to see a tremendous illustration of that point in our narrative this morning. Jesus desires for us to come alive. He desires for us to experience abundant life. At the end of the Gospel of John, we get the purpose statement of why John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, wrote this account of Jesus' life and ministry in the first place. And he says this at the end in verse um, 31 of chapter 20. I have written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's Jesus' desire as we explore the gospel of John in this series, that we might believe that he is the Son of God and that we might have life in his name. Let me read our passage for us this morning. It's an account of a wedding. It's a celebration that Jesus finds himself in the midst of. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples And they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us and guide us. Holy Spirit, bring the word 
the words of eternal life to bear on our hearts and our minds this morning. Expand our imaginations that we might see Jesus for who he truly is, that we may receive the life, the abundant life that he came to bring us. We pray that you would do this, whether we find ourselves in the moment believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the past week, uh, one of my neighbors, I noticed, posted something on Facebook. He shared an article, uh, and as he shared the article, he made this comment. I was raised in an evangelical Christian household, and I have to say that every single word of this rings true. I opened up the article, and the article begins basically with this paragraph. Do you wonder why the proportion of Americans declaring themselves unaffiliated with organized religion has skyrocketed in recent decades? The trend is especially pronounced among adults under 30, roughly 40% of whom claim no connection to a religious congregation or tradition and have joined the ranks of those the pollsters call the nuns. Not nuns in a convent, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns. And then my neighbor uh, added this in one of his comments as people were commenting on this. In reference to Christians, rather than asking themselves how to reach out to people and be true fishers of men, the reason, the reaction is dismissive toward the culture or the world. And he adds, I've actually been thinking about going back to church, but his holdup is this very dynamic that he describes. Now I want to switch gears. Uh, I, in research for this sermon series, uh, along the lines of the theme of human flourishing and the biblical story's uh, presentation of that, what the Bible has to say about flourishing, uh, I came across a Christian organization or think tank, and uh, as they, in the beginning of, uh, or on their webpage, described who they are and what they're about, they mentioned this, many of the cultural battles of our day are being lost because Christians concern themselves with winning, with seizing the reins of power. But rather, power, according to a Christian definition, is about creating such a robust, robust vision of a flourishing society that human crippling worldviews are revealed as the shriveling and anemic perspectives they are. The biblical worldview alone secures the concept of human flourishing. What is all this about? How do we bring all of this together? The point that we want to make out of this passage is that Jesus makes life better. Now, as you hear me say that, you could take that in a multitude of directions. What I don't mean is this, that if you're feeling sad, get over it, feel happy because Jesus makes life better. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm referring to is this idea that Jesus, you know, Jesus in John chapter 10 says this, that I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. We looked at this last week. The purpose for which Jesus came was to bring abundant life, to bring vibrant life, to bring life that is overflowing. In other words, to restore us to a life that God intended from the very beginning. This is the purpose for which Jesus came. But as we come to our narrative this morning, I, I, there's got, if we're honest, there has to be a disconnect between how we so often think of Jesus, how we all so often think of Christianity, 
and who Jesus is and who he shows himself to be in his actions in this narrative. My guess, and I referred to this during the confession of sin, is that so often we don't associate Jesus with life, with flourishing, with parties. But the title of this sermon is The Life of the Party, and it's referring to Jesus because Jesus makes himself the life of the party here in this account. And there's lots for us to learn about who Jesus is and how we are to live in light of who he is. So I want to look at um, two things in this passage. First, the situation that we have here in the narrative, and then the significance of what Jesus does. So the situation, and then we want to go uh, deep into it and look at its significance. Let's begin by talking about this situation that Jesus finds himself in the midst of here in John chapter 2. Weddings in the first century were significant events. Now, weddings are significant events still to this day, right? Uh, I had the joy and honor of doing a wedding uh, just last Sunday, and the couple may or may not be here back from their honeymoon this morning. It's good to see them. I'm not looking in any particular direction. But it was a time of celebration, of festivity, and it wasn't just the day of the wedding. It was even the night before at the rehearsal and rehearsal dinner. For us, uh, weddings tend to be weekend events, right? But in the first century, weddings were oftentimes a week-long period of festivities and celebration. In fact, uh, people, the host would invite as many people as possible, especially people of importance, which would include prominent teachers. Uh, Basically, it was often the case that the entire village would end up coming to this wedding and being invited because everyone knew each other, and a wedding, like we said, was a time of incredible celebration, joy, and festivity that um, the host and those who were involved wanted to invite others into so that they might, too, experience the joy. And so the wedding uh, or the festivities around it would oftentimes last seven days, including feasts, processions, and dances. Now, among other things, the wedding feast in particular was to be a sign of the husband's financial stability. The husband would prove through throwing a a lavish banquet for um, all of the guests that he had the means to take care of his wife and one day children as well. Maybe you see where this is going. Running out of food or drink would have been more than just simply an embarrassment. It was actually something that could get you sued. How is that the case? How could that get you sued? I mean, that's, that's rough, right? So, you know, imagine, you've, this has probably happened to you before, not in the context of a, a wedding, but in the context of maybe a party that you've hosted or a party that you've attended um, where food or drink has run out. And it's a little embarrassing maybe, right? Um, it's a, oh, I was wondering why everybody was looking into the corner of the sanctuary. It's like, I'm right here. Not that it's about me. I, forget, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, you've probably been to a party or you've hosted a party um, where you've run out of food or drink. And it's embarrassing, but, you know, it doesn't go beyond that. It doesn't go beyond a level of embarrassment. But you see, the reason that this could get somebody sued um, in ancient times was because 
the bride's family had given a dowry, a gift, and for it to be uh, stewarded well. And so all kinds of questions could arise here. The, uh, the, the groom would have been um, open to possible shame. Uh, he would have been concerned about how people thought about his level of responsibility. Maybe they view this as, wow, he's really an irresponsible guy. He couldn't even provide what was necessary for this party. So this is not just simply an embarrassing um, thing that happens here in this wedding. It has deeper and more significant ramifications than that. It was more than just simply a social blunder, in other words. This carried with it um, pretty far-reaching circumstances for the groom and his wife, potentially for years to come. The wine runs out. Wow. You know, given all that we just said, that is a massive deal. The wine runs out. Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, seems particularly deeply concerned about the fact that the wine has run out. Why is that? Why is she, of all of the guests, particularly concerned? We don't know exactly why. Uh, Some commentators uh, guess that maybe she had something to do with the catering of the food and the, the drink for the event. We're not sure about that, but multiple commentators raise that question. But whatever the reason is, she is deeply concerned. And she comes to Jesus with her concern. If you look at um, verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Why does she go to Jesus? It's hard to say again. We don't know. The uh, narrative doesn't tell us. Uh, At the end of this uh, narrative, we learn that this was Jesus' first miracle that he performed. So it it doesn't seem to to be the case that within the household growing up, he was performing large-scale miracles. You know, we don't get the sense that there were times where Jesus, as a young boy, would gather the family together and, you know, they would make requests. Okay, Jesus, now do this miracle. Oh, how about the one you did last week? That was really cool. We, and actually, in how Jesus responds to her, we get the case that we get the sense that that wasn't it at all. Now, Mary knew that there was something special and unique about Jesus, going back to the fact that she had a virgin birth, right? And all of the prophecy um, that came surrounding that. But beyond that, we're not exactly sure why she comes to him. Is it because she believed that he could provide some kind of miracle? Or is it just simply. Um, she's in proximity to him at this party. Uh, he is her son. And so she basically is implying, you know, can you help me out? Can you go buy some more wine? We're not sure exactly what is behind Mary's request specifically to Jesus. Jesus' response to his mother is really interesting and really abrupt, giving the context, isn't it? Jesus said to her in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, this is, uh, there are lots of places in Scripture where this is true, but we, we have to be careful, or at least we have to be aware as we read the Bible, we're reading it through our cultural lens and our context. And so when you and I read this, there's probably a level of an offense for us. Maybe you even thought, she should smack that boy right now. 
But this was not a, an offensive way of speaking for Jesus. He actually uses the same exact word, the same language as he is dying on the cross, referring to his mother. He refers to her as woman. It's actually a term of endearment and affection. However, it is the case that Jesus is communicating something significant here. By not simply referring to her as his mother and by referring to her as um, woman, he is clearly indicating that there are layers to their relationship. We could say it like that. There are layers to this relationship. Yes, Jesus is her son and she is his mother, but she's going to have to, I mean, I can't imagine this, grow accustomed to relating to him as her Lord, as God, as her Savior. And Jesus seems to be offended that she would make a request of him. It's like, what does this have to do with me? I'm not the bridegroom, although he is. We'll find out. He's actually the true and real bridegroom. But he uh, says to her, what does this have to do with me? And then what does he go on to say? This is really important. He says in verse uh, um, 5, or um, later in verse 4, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What does Jesus mean when he uses those words? Well, this becomes a phrase that Jesus will use um, throughout the Gospel of John. When Jesus is speaking of his hour, he's speaking of his death, his crucifixion. He knows that that is on the horizon. And so our, our community group actually um, read through this passage and talked about it some this past week. And um, somebody in our community group uh, put it well. He said that um, once Jesus starts going public, and this is what he does uh, at this wedding, the clock is, starts ticking. The clock starts ticking. Jesus knew that once he began to perform miracles, once he began to talk about his identity and make claims about how he was actually really God, he knew that the religious leaders would become infuriated. And so when we talk about the clock starts ticking, that's what we mean. Jesus knew that he only had a certain amount of time. And so he's communicating to his mother, the time is not right. And he doesn't go on to say this, but, you know, we can imagine him thinking it. You don't understand all that is going on here and all that will be going on. I have to be careful. I have to be cautious. But it's clear that Mary um, hears hope in his words, in his response. Because notice what she then says to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. That's actually really good advice about Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. So it's clear. It, now, is Mary just being rebellious? You know, maybe she's coming from a posture of, um, I'm your mother. You'll figure something out. She turns to the servants. Do whatever he tells you because he's going to figure out something. I don't think so. I, 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 and here's the other thing about Scripture, particularly the Gospels, and John says as much at the end of the Gospel. He couldn't include every story about Jesus in his Gospels because there was so many. It could be that there was more dialogue here, and John is just giving us what is essential for keeping the pace going in the story that he's telling. Um, again, it, it's hard to say for sure, but Mary still continued to hold out belief that Jesus could do something. Now, whether it was performing a miracle or just practically going and getting some resources, it's hard to say. 
John, as I alluded to at the end of this account, refers to this, what Jesus does in the turning of of water to wine, as a sign. Um, Verse 11, if you skip down. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. What does John mean with the use of this word sign? Well, a sign is something that points beyond itself. For example, if we look to the Lord's table, um, we see elements, we see bread, we see wine or, or grape juice. They are signs. The bread points to something beyond itself. The bread points to the body of Christ broken for us. The wine or the grape juice is a sign that points beyond itself. It points to the blood of Christ shed for us. And so Jesus, in performing this miracle, is performing a sign. It's not so much about the thing itself. It's meant to point to something beyond itself. That's what a sign is. So what we're saying here is that this was an actual historical event that really happened. But to to ascertain the true meaning behind it, you had to look more closely. You had to look more deeply, and that's what we have to do. It's why we're going through this passage this morning. Now, before we move into talking about the significance, we're currently talking about the situation that we have here, I want to ask a question. Again, verse 11, this was the first of the signs that Jesus performed. Why this sign? Why is this the first one? Keep in mind, as we read the gospel, Jesus does all kinds of incredible things. He heals people who are sick. He raises people who are dead to life. You know, I I think of these as a bigger deal than simply turning water to wine at a wedding. So why would Jesus begin with this sign? Nobody's sick. Nobody's demon-possessed that we know of at this wedding. And nobody seems to be starving. And yet Jesus chooses this time, this opportunity, to perform his first sign or miracle. Let's put it bluntly. The first miracle, the first sign that Jesus performs is a sign meant to keep a party going. That is what Jesus is all about. Jesus has come to not simply keep the party going, but to invite us into a party. And we're going to see how he ultimately is the host of the party. Let's talk about the significance. This is a really interesting story. We've already touched on some of the reasons why. Um, One of the reasons it's so interesting is for the details that we don't have in the text. We have so many questions. You know, who was the the, uh, bride and groom? You know, it'd be kind of cool to know. Maybe there are people that we um, know of later in the gospel. We don't know. Um, There's no um, mention of the wedding party or the other guests who are there except for a a few, Jesus, the disciples, Mary. Um, We're not told how people responded to the miracle, if they knew about it at all. A a small group of people knew, but we're not told whether everyone at the wedding became aware of where all of this wine suddenly came from. So it's an interesting story. Now, if we go back to the very first few words of this chapter, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. 
Why does John specify the day on which this took place? This is an interesting detail because through most of his gospel, John is not specific about time. Two main places where he counts sequences of days are the raising of Lazarus, which comes later in the gospel, I think it's chapter 11, and in these first two chapters that introduce the gospel. When John counts days, he does so for a specific purpose. So, in other words, his inclusion of this detail matters. It is significant. In this case, when John says that this wedding happened on the third day, we need to, we need to connect it back to John's counting of days that are enumerated throughout chapters 1 and 2. And what we find is that this event, this miracle, this sign performed by Jesus at the wedding happens on the seventh day um, in that context. What John is doing, we talked about this last week in chapter 1, what John is doing in a subtle manner is he's paralleling the seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry to the days of creation in the beginning of Genesis. Remember how the Gospel of John begins. John begins with these words, in the beginning was the Word. John is intending that we immediately go back to the beginning of the biblical story, the first few words of the Bible, in the beginning was God. And so John, um, as he's crafting his Gospel, as he's telling this story of Jesus' life, he's brilliant, and he's being creative. And he's wanting us to make the connection between the original creation and, shall we say, this new creation being inaugurated by Jesus himself. That is clearly what John is doing here in the first two chapters. And so we're going to talk about both of these uh, categories, but Jesus has come not just to bring about individual renewal into the lives of individuals, but he's come to bring renewal to the creation as a whole. And this sign, this miracle, signifies that in a very powerful and glorious way. Jesus has come to bring wholeness and flourishing. That's the point of our series. Now, you may have picked up on the fact that there is an MC at this event. He's the one who presides over this. His job was to help make the party great. With this miracle, Jesus is saying, I am the real MC of the party. I am the master of ceremonies. I am the Lord of the feast, and I have come to bring a festival of joy into the world to my people. We also have to understand, to really appreciate the significance of this, the culture in which these people lived and how they viewed wine and weddings. We've already touched on this some, and joy and celebration. For them, if you go back to the Old Testament, in multiple passages throughout the Old Testament, we get language that um, talks about wine, abundance, joy, celebration, even of wedding festivities. So Jesus choosing this moment to reveal his glory is not coincidental. Jesus is wanting to say, I am the Lord of the feast. 
And for Jews, um, one commentator um, points this out in a helpful way. He says, there is no rejoicing without wine, capturing um, the Jewish celebrations um, throughout in, in their culture. Now, with that in mind, look at verses 5 through 10. His mother, Jesus' mother, tells the servants to do whatever Jesus says. And then in verse 6, we're told that there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So let's talk about um, what's going on here. We have these six stone water jars. We're told that they were there for um, Jewish rites of purification. This was a big deal for the Jewish people. The need to keep themselves clean. The need that they were to feel for purification because God throughout the history of his people, his people was telling his people that there is a deep and real way in which you are defiled. You are internally defiled. And within the scope of the Bible, that defilement originated in the rebellion against God by the first humans. You see, human beings were created by God to live in relationship with him, to flourish under his rule, his reign, under his leadership, to live all of life in relationship to him. And the sin of human beings is ultimately deciding that we know the better way. We'd rather not submit our lives to somebody over us. We can figure it out on our own. We can manage life apart from a good God who is our greatest good. And from that point on, human beings have been defiled. And Scripture tells us, John, um, Jesus will teach this um, later in the gospel, that this is something that touches all human beings. Now, let me stop for a moment, because I understand that, it, that for some of you, this could be a point of contention. Like Maybe you, you feel like I've lost you already because I just made a huge jump, a huge assumption. Wait a second. I think that people are primarily good. People aren't defiled. Um, but stick with me for a moment. As we look out at the world around us, why can't we figure it out? I mean, that's, that's a genuine question that I, that I ask regularly. Why can't we figure it out? I mean, yes, obviously, world news, um, news of our city, um, but also, just as you see people going back and forth on Facebook, why can't we figure it out? It points to this reality that something is wrong, right? Can we, can we admit to that? Something is wrong. There's something that keeps us from each other. There's something that I would, I would say keeps us from, from God himself. And there's something that causes friction even within us. Let me put this in other terms as we talk about the need for purification. Why is it that you're always trying to cleanse yourself? Now, I don't necessarily mean physically, although it's good to do that. I'm talking about internally. Why do you feel the deep need constantly all the time to cleanse yourself? By trying to justify yourself, make yourself right, show yourself to be better than the other person. You know, why do we taint and pollute everything that we put our hands on and everything that we do? Any endeavor in life, you know, whether it be in the workplace or um, in school, why is it so often that our um, glorious desires become so easily tainted? You know, we, we want to do well, we want to advance in order to, to bring glory to God maybe or to just serve others 
or just because we want to do whatever is before us with excellence. But why is it that always trailing that is, and oh, I'm so jealous of that person. Uh, I, I, I want to get beyond them. If, if only I can get to this point, then people will really look up to me. I'll have the respect that I so desperately want. Why is it that we live the entirety of our lives like that? Constantly trying to justify ourselves, make ourselves whole. We're trying to purify ourselves because we know that something is wrong. We know, we wouldn't use these terms maybe, this term, but we know that we are defiled. And so these jars um, that symbolize purification, notice what Jesus does. If you look at uh, the reflection quote that we have at the front of the worship guide this morning, this comes from a pastor named Jeff Vanderstelt. Jesus took the ceremonial stuff of religion, changed it, and made the party better. This is what Jesus does. Jesus makes life better. Jesus brings the better wine. He takes empty religion and ritual and brings it to life for everyday people. He takes what many deem holy, like the water in the ceremonial cleansing jars, and brings it to the party. He breaks down the barrier between what people might call sacred and secular. Jesus makes all things sacred, including wine at a party. I love that first line. Jesus took the ceremonial stuff of religion, changed it, and made the party better. Jesus is redefining religion. He's wanting to blow the minds of the people that he is beginning to minister to. Because even though these rituals of cleansing, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, all of these things were designed by God to point them to the need for redemption or cleansing from the outside, just like you and me, we take these good things and we use them as means by which we try to purify ourselves. And the Jewish people were guilty of that. And what Jesus, ultimately what this miracle is signifying is that there is a new way. It's not empty religion or ritual, but it's newness of life found in the person of Jesus. Jesus makes life better. He brings the better wine to the party. This is good news for us. And remember, John tells us that this was a sign, and so he wanted us to see the deeper meaning. He wanted us to see what it points to, and this is it. This is the good news. You and I can stop striving. You and I can stop trying to cleanse or purify ourselves. We can be honest about our defilement that we see expressed in all kinds of different ways in life, but we are free to stop trying to cleanse ourselves. And we can't. We can't cleanse ourselves. I want you to see that as well. Because if we were able to cleanse ourselves, we wouldn't still be continuing to cleanse ourselves. But Jesus comes in a different context, presenting himself from the outside. We talked about this last week as the one who brings purification on our behalf. Now let's go from the personal to um, the social, if you will, the effects that this has that this had on the wedding itself. I already alluded to the fact that um, in the culture of the day, and for the Jewish people, wine, um, celebration, 
uh, feasting, all of these things would have been prominent things um, in their narrative as a people. And we, we, we looked at how oftentimes in the Old Testament, the language used about the Messiah, the one who would come to make all things right and new, um, the language that was used was this kind of language of celebration, of festivities, of, of, of wine overflowing. And so again, what this is signifying is that Jesus is that one. Now it's subtle here because remember, what does Jesus tell Mary? My time hasn't come. It's almost like he says, Oh, mother, my time hasn't yet come, but I, all right, I'll do something for you. Uh, I, I'll uh, do it in a, in a more of a low-key manner. It's, you know, we're not going to draw attention to it so it becomes obvious to everyone, but I'll help you out. This idea of weddings, marriage, it's a theme found throughout the biblical story. And I want to point you ahead in the biblical story to Revelation chapter 21. I want to read that for us. Revelation chapter 21 is the second to last chapter in all of the Bible. And it begins in this way, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the ultimate fulfillment of this is what? Spoken about in Revelation 19. A feast. Jesus is the host of the party. That's another way of explaining this text. That who is Jesus? Jesus is the host of the cosmic party. Jesus is going to throw a party. And he's come into the world, and he wants to start inviting people into the party. How do you get into the party? It's not necessarily based on who you know. Well, it is based on who you know in Jesus, but not in terms of who you know in other people. It's not based on your credentials. It's not based on your record, your reputation. It's based on the very grace and mercy of Jesus. And if you respond to him by faith, as John talks about in the purpose of his gospel, if you believe that he really is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name, Jesus says you are welcome to my party, and we are going to party for all eternity. Now, that sounds weird. I'm guessing that some of you in that last statement that we're going to party for all eternity sounds a little awkward. But I'm using the language of the Bible. Jesus came to make life better. Now, to clarify, just to be clear, the Bible throughout speaks against drunkenness. However, it speaks, when it speaks of wine, it speaks of life, of joy. It's a symbol pointing to something beyond itself. It's a good gift from God, meant to be received by him with thanks. And Jesus obviously um, views it as favorably, views it favorably because he turns water into wine, right? in order to commence this party that he is the host of. Jesus did, so let's come back to the question that I asked earlier. Why this? Why was this his first miracle? Why his first sign? Why not raising somebody from the dead like he did? Why not healing a sick person like he did? Why this? Why something that might seem, in comparison to those other things, as small and insignificant. 
Jesus did it for the joy of the party. That's, that's why he did this, for the joy of the party. Jesus has come to make life better. Jesus has come to bring joy. He wants people to flourish. And so he comes and performs this sign, this miracle, because he wants people to have joy. Why is it that God's people all too often come across as the most joyless people on the face of the earth? Have you ever wondered about that? Why is it that our lives so often look just like anybody else's lives? We're caught up in the rat race, if you will. We make ourselves really, really busy. We exhaust ourselves. Um, we, you know, because we're exhausted or also because we're sinners, we react out against people. What if we began to frame our days around this idea that Jesus is the host of the party? And Jesus makes life better. What would it look like for us to live in light of that? Now, I think I said this as I set up the confession of or sin, or maybe it was the beginning of the sermon. Um, that's what always happens. By this point in the service, everything blends together. Maybe that's a good thing. Um, but Jesus, he, he, makes, he makes everything better. But I don't mean that in our dark times um, that we just have to flip a switch it's like, oh yeah, Jesus, I feel better now. It doesn't mean that um, we somehow are able to avoid darkness. It doesn't mean that we overlook the darkness and brokenness and injustice in our world. It actually means the opposite, that we pursue bringing wholeness to those things out of joy and abundance. Somebody in our um, community group this past week had... Um, the, the wonderful statement of God lavishes us with good things so that we might lavish others with good things. I should have just made that the main point of the sermon. God lavishes us with good things so that we might lavish others with good things. You see, even in Jesus alone, God has given us everything that we need spiritually, everything that we might need to thrive and truly flourish. And true discipleship of Jesus is to learn how to participate in this, to give this abundance away, to not hold so closely to our possessions, to our resources, but to lavish others with good things because our God is so good and abundant, and he has invited us into his abundance. So let me ask you this question. Where is the party lacking around you? Where is the party lacking around you? Now, when we started City Church, going back to the very uh, beginning, it was actually this kind of stuff that helped frame uh, the church plant for me and our core team and what we were trying to do. And one of the things that I said early on is that we are coming into this neighborhood, into this city as servants. And we're actually not going to start a lot of stuff um, right away, and <laughs> You know, I'd be fine with not starting anything um, if it meant that we could find better and more effective ways to minister to our community. And what we said is, we want to get in on what is already going on, and we want to bring life and joy to the party. Now, since then, um, God has given us opportunities where we've seen lack um, to create something. But where is it around you that you can make the party better? Through serving 
through proclaiming who Jesus is, through demonstrating who Jesus is by your actions. What would it look like for us in our community groups to be known in our communities as people of joy, as people of celebration, who are able to affirm the good things of creation while um, being honest and um, not being afraid to speak out against sin and injustice as we see it in the world around us? What would it look like for our church to be known as a place of celebration, of festivity and joy because the fullness of Jesus is in and among us? What could change in our daily lives if we began to ask this question? Now, you're not going to turn water into wine. I'm just going to... You can prove me wrong, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, most likely that is not going to be how you contribute. Jesus is Jesus. He's unique. He's the Son of God. But in following him, Jesus' presence is with us. And he calls us as his people to be his very presence in the world, to fill up what is lacking, to bring the better wine to the party, so to speak. And so what would that practically, concretely look like for us? Let's bring this full circle. Going back to how I introduced the sermon with my um, neighbor who posted on Facebook, and um, I, I agree with much of what he has said. The, the posture of Christians, has, particularly in America, has so often been one of condemnation only, of um, relating to the culture around us negatively. It's been really helpful for me to travel to Africa, uh, to West Africa, uh, Senegal, and Gambia, um, two different times. Because there, now let, let me connect it in this way or create this context. We might think, well, I, I don't have a lot to give. I don't have a lot of resources. And so when you talk about giving away, I don't really have much to give away. Let's talk about not having much to give away. So many of the brothers and sisters in Senegal and Gambia don't have anything to give away, and yet they're still giving their lives away because they don't think of fullness in terms of material possessions. They think of fullness as life in Jesus. They actually really believe that Jesus is the host of the party who makes life better. And so throughout their culture are regular times of celebration. Now, throughout the culture as a whole, but particularly um, Christians in even redeeming some of those uh, social events that are practiced throughout their culture and making them oriented around Jesus, but even in how they serve their communities. Um, one of the ways that um, they have found to be most effective for planting churches is to go into these villages that are, I mean, keep in mind that Gambia is 96% Muslim, and they go into these villages and talk to the elders of the villages about whether or not they can start something for the kids in that village. And almost without fail, I mean, sometimes it does fail, but almost without fail, they say yes to the invitation because they want help with this very practical need of providing stuff for their children. And so, um, you know, Wayne and I, uh, the last time we went to Gambia, participated in a worship service, and the congregation was very young. I'm about to go off on a tangent, but I can't help it. Um, remember what I shared with you in the beginning of the sermon about the statistic about young people and the nuns? This will be a t something for another sermon, but we have to be careful with that because usually what that implies is white people. There was another article that I just came across yesterday that actually says the exact opposite globally, that in the coming years, almost everybody will be religious, and that category of nuns will be very slim. 
So, all right, tangent over. Um, just felt like I had to insert that. I'll, I'll maybe focus on that in a, another sermon. Um, but the, the congregations in uh, Gambia are very young. They are the future of the church. And these churches, while they have very little, are places of joy, of celebration, and of festivity. What will it look like for us as a church as a whole in the life of our community groups, among our neighbors and communities, to have this outward focus? That we exist not simply for ourselves, but we exist to be used by Jesus to bring the fullness of the kingdom to bear on life all around us. That is why we exist. Let me say it one more time. That is why we exist. There's no other reason that we might be able to come up with. We exist to make Jesus known in the everyday stuff of life. And so, in the same way that Jesus takes what might be viewed as the secular and makes it sacred, how could we use the everyday stuff of life around us? How can we love the people around us to offer it up to God as an act of worship? To, in our own um, veiled and failed ways, Seek to present the world with the good news that Jesus makes life better. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know if I really believe what I just preached. In my head, I do, but so often in my heart, I don't. I can at least say this, I don't always live like it. So I pray, and I am imagining the case that this is true for all of my brothers and sisters here. So I pray that you would give us grace Give us vision for who you are. You are the Lord of the feast. We thank you for the good news that you have cleansed us. You have done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And because of that, we have great freedom and joy. Show us how to make this known to the world. Because deep down inside, we do want the world to know this joy that is found in you alone, Jesus. So give us vision. Give us grace to actually live this out so that you might be known, so that you might be worshipped, and that you might be enjoyed among our neighbors. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.